Hello and welcome to the Old Bob New Bob edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Anna Chemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I'm joined by Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. And yes, we're going to talk about stonks. Stonks went down. We're going to talk a little bit about stonks went down because we have to because stonks went down. But we're not going to talk too much about stonks went down. We're going to talk a bit about coronavirus. We're going to talk a bit about... Bobs. Bobs. (laughs) We're going to talk a lot about Bobs, actually. There's two Bobs now running Disney, and we're going to talk a lot about Disney and what that means and why they need two Bobs to run it. And most excitingly, to be honest, we're going to talk about French Ponzi's. (laughs) Because there's the most French Ponzi scheme you've ever heard of, and it's glorious, and we're going to dissect that. We also have a Slate Plus about the four-day work week. All of that coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So that was a fun week. Wild. Wild. There were so many headlines about the stock market. Apparently, in case you've been under a rock, it went down. It does go down. I got some alerts about that on my phone. Um, I've been in long meta discussions with a bunch of people at Axios about when and why and whether we should alert stock market movements and send out alerts and that kind of thing. Because on the one hand, everyone seems to do it. It seems to be a thing that people do. And then on the other hand, it's a little bit of like, why are we doing it? Right. Yeah. Um, I have a rule. What's your rule? It should only be based on percentage, not like just number of points. So we, yeah, so we have this 3% rule now um, that if the stock market moves 3%, we should move it, alert it. But like one of the weird things is that people alert it like six hours after it falls 3%, like when the market closes, because apparently the close is important uh, for some reason. But the more interesting question is why do people get much more exercised about fast drops than slow drops and about fast drops and slow rises because we've had like a incredibly strong and powerful slow rise for like 10 years and it hasn't been generating these kind of headlines well of course anything that's out of the ordinary that's based on uncertainty i mean this is panic so of course people just like kind of the natural human reaction is to feel like this is far scarier than just like oh things are continuing to keep getting slightly better 
Yeah, a sudden drop is much more scary than a gradual decline. Like walking down a little hill, <laughs> you know, is okay, but you know, falling off a cliff is more troubling, I suppose. And, and I think I think one of the things that's going on this week is that the panic associated with the coronavirus has become intermingled with the stock market and suddenly they seem to be pretty much the same thing in the mind of Donald Trump. <laughs> Yeah, yes. I think his reaction has been interesting um, that the president of the United States seems less concerned with a, a impending public health crisis, which the CDC said this week, like expect coronavirus to come here and we'll have to deal with it and get ready to deal with it. And instead of the president saying we're doing everything we can to deal with it, um, we're mustering, you know, all our resources Da da da. He's trying to reassure people that the stock market's going to be okay. I, <laughs> I think he's trying to maybe even reassure himself that the stock market's okay. And Anna and I were saying before we came in, like Americans are concerned with like not getting sick and like not dying. Not dying would be good. And like getting an alert on my phone about the stock market, it just adds to this feeling of like chaos and panic, and doesn't and, actually serve a purpose right, to like a right. normal. Human. One of the things that seems to be happening in the mind of Donald Trump is that this is like an attack on his presidency. Yeah, yes. And and it's like an and, and he should he should belittle it and deny it and do all of the things that he does to like Blame individuals yeah. who attack his presidency. And you can't just go around belittling and denying something like coronavirus. That right. doesn't really get you very far. Although I think he has tried to somewhat blame it on the Democrats. Of like the, <laughs> that they are like creating all this fear as a way to kind of bring him down. And I think um, it's really sad and telling that he created a coronavirus task force. And who did they put on the coronavirus task force but Steve Mnuchin and Larry Kudlow as if what are they going to do? How are they going to help me? Noted health expert <laughs> Noted Larry health, Kudlow. I mean, it's just... It's it doesn't give you much confidence. Right. No, I well, mean, no, but it does. I, 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 little known fact: Larry Kudlow is a epidemiologist, <laughs> but no, it's, it's, with an expert expert in infectious diseases. But it, it's fitting. It's fitting in the sense because, as as we've just saying, he doesn't really care about the effects of the virus in terms of how it affects people's health. He cares about and not even how it affects the economy, but how it affects markets, mm. which I think is interesting. Like, so, so the big question which we should be asking is. Is this stock market fall, belated though it is, because stock, coronavirus has been a big story for like all year pretty much, but certainly all month, and the stock market fall is just like a week old. Um, but is this a rational response to supply lines being cut, the people staying at home, all of the potential effects that a major pandemic could have on the global economy, or does it feel a little bit jittery and panicky? It's probably the greatest answer, but a little bit of both. Like, I think that because this is going on for so long and because recently we've been seeing the spike in cases outside of China, there is now concern that this could actually, you know, last into potentially the next quarter and actually be disrupting supply chains, actually have a, an impact on the real economy, not just it, markets. It could, it could affect the supply of Diet Coke. <laughs> yes. But also even like medication. Fox really like overblew that. <laughs> Did you read that article? There was an, uh, an article online on, on Fox and it said um, Coca-Cola warns of Diet Coke shortage because of coronavirus. Then you read the piece and it's like, 
there might be a shortage of some of the various chemicals used to produce Diet Coke, but Coke says it's probably going to be fine. (laughs) So if that's what we're worried about, it doesn't seem like it's much to worry about. On the other hand... There are bigger things to worry about. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like... (laughs) Because it's also, you know, China really is in a lot of ways the linchpin of the economy, like what they buy from other countries. If you're looking at a lot of EM economies and how they're affected by China, like this is a big deal. And it comes after a period where we were already having some China weakness. So I think that part of this is actually a little bit of a rational come down from what I would call a little bit of irrational exuberance. And to be very clear about this, stocks are down, but they are still at objectively high levels. Exactly. The stock market is still strong and pricing in pretty healthy economic activity in the future because ultimately stock prices are basically a bet on what is going to happen in the future. Yeah. And also just maybe a tad bit of a wonky thing, but like also last year's, you know, almost 30% return was mostly for multiple expansion. And that is basically you're bringing returns from the future into the present, right? right. So if you're looking at what we can expect now, you're, you're not going to expect the market to go up that much. And, and just to, to finish that thought, if we just go back down to where we were, say, this time last year, that's a long way to fall. Even yes. From where yeah, we are that now. would be a big mm-hmm. way to fall. Yeah. I have a couple of questions and thoughts. My first thought is, if the market's truly being affected by coronavirus and the economy is truly being affected by coronavirus, isn't that just a short-term problem? Because eventually people get sick and they get better and supply chains and lines resume and hotels fill back up and, you know, people go back outside so th- again this and all conferences, re- yeah. you know, happen. This like- assumes that, well, there are two different parts to that question. Um, the first one is that, you know, are you assuming that coronavirus will be a temporary thing which comes and then goes? And I think that's the base case scenario that basically these kind of flu-like viruses tend to go away in the summer. But if it doesn't go away in the summer and then it resurges in the fall and it looks like it's in so many countries now and so many continents now and so many people now that it might well, it probably will come back in some way in the fall and then next winter and then it'll become a permanent thing and that could be really bad. And then the second part of it is, yes, you know, previous scares like SARS and whatnot have seen that kind of what they call V-shaped recovery. It goes down and it goes back up again. But that's no guarantee that we'd have the same kind of V-shaped recovery this time. Right. And and the, yeah, the longer this goes on, the less likely it is that we're going to have just this kind of massive V-shaped recovery. And also, when you're talking about services that people aren't doing, mm. it's not like I can see four movies, you know, because I didn't see the movie this right. time. You, you know never, what I mean? You right. can never recover those losses. Yeah. You can never I mean, there's still the one off be full. losses. But, you know, I mean, travel is interesting. Travel has been increasing steadily. Again, like this is one of those things where we're at levels which we have never seen before, especially travel from China has been hitting unbelievable records, which were unthinkable just a few years ago. Do we assume that Chinese people are going to start traveling again to the degree that they were, you know, before this virus? It is possible, but then it is also possible that they won't. I think a lot of this might hinge on what happens in the U.S. because it seems like what the turning point was for markets this week really was the CDC warning, making people in the U.S. be like, oh, my God. And I think if it hits here and we have the the same, you know, the hotels closing, people can't, schools closing, whatever, all that stuff is going to be a really bad sign for 
the economy and the market. I, I can tell you as someone who lives in Chinatown that like, I have my own tiny little mini local recession going on right now. The restaurants are super empty. There's a lot of like genuine hardship. Like people are wondering how they're going to make rent. You know, the, the merchants, there's, you know, this is a thing that exists on the ground, not just in, you know, Hong Kong, but also in bits of New York City. And then my thing, I'm going to write a piece, I think, today um, that you guys can look for, that listeners can look for online, but um, really about how, like Donald Trump says many crazy things, but he actually said one really good piece of advice this week in his press conference was like, if you're sick, stay home. But the problem in the U.S. is a lot of people can't just stay home. They don't have paid sick leave. And if they don't go to work, they don't get paid. Or if they don't go to work enough times, they get fired. Um, and then meanwhile, people should go to the doctor, presumably. But again, like it's the beginning of the year. And a lot of people have these very high deductible health insurance plans where, you know, you have to spend like a thousand, two thousand more dollars out of your pocket before you get covered. And at the beginning of the year, all your deductibles have reset themselves. So a lot of people, especially now, won't go to the doctor unless it's like dire. So the, I, I the potential this, for infection yeah. um, is higher here because of how lame we are about that yeah, stuff. Yeah, the, the, the healthcare system in the United States is almost designed to exacerbate yes. this kind of thing. Yes. Um, I was reading, you know, I, I think we've all seen the headlines now about like, you know, someone goes in to get tested for coronavirus, it comes back negative, and then they get like a $1,500 bill. And you're mm -hmm. like, what? That's not the way that you treat a highly infectious disease. Right. And when you had, um, I think it was Azar, um, the the HHS director who said if they find a vaccine, they, they get it up to market. And he was asked, like, will you make it affordable for people? He said no. What? Well, no. He, <laughs> he I think said he didn't. He, he like, wouldn't, wouldn't want to mess with the market. He didn't want to mess know. with the, the private markets like that. Like, he should have said, absolutely, yes. Like, we will do all we can to keep Americans healthy. But, like, that's not the way it works here. We don't do all we can to keep Americans healthy. It's crazy. It's, it's true that we don't. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Old Bob, new Bob. Old Bob, new Bob. <laughs> That's right, Felix. Two Bobs <laughs> for the price of two Bobs. <laughs> the, the, two, bob, two Bobs for the price of millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> so well, the, the old dollars. Bob was making $47 million a year and is still making $47 million a year. He didn't get a pay cut for his no longer being CEO. And you're talking about Robert Iger, the CEO of Disney, who just announced he was stepping down. He, well, Stepping up, I think, is probably a better word. Stepping to the side. Um, Ascending. We have talked on this show before about the bizarre weirdness that is the executive chairman job. Um, and guess what? Bob Iger has become the latest bizarre, weird executive chairman. Um, just for those of us who um, have short memories, executive chairman is an oxymoron, basically. That executive means you're an executive, which means you report to the CEO. And chairman means you're the CEO's boss. So you are both working for the company and therefore for the CEO, while also the CEO is working for you. It's bizarrely circular. And it's basically a way of CEOs to not be CEO anymore, but still be in charge, which makes no sense. Yeah. And it's also just bad corporate governance. Wait, but 
hang on. I've read an article. First of all, I just need to say it's annoying to me that it, the position is just chairman. Like, no one is even pretending that a woman has this job. <laughs> okay, put that aside. The Steph p- Corey called herself executive chairman. That was the job that she gave herself. Yeah, and someone sent me on Twitter an article that was about, um, I think, Shapiro um, becoming the, f- the first female chairman of the SEC. Which, anyway. So, but beside that... Um, the article made the case in the journal that executive chair is actually like a good thing for corporate governance because it, it allows someone with experience to sort of like mentor and guide a new CEO through. Yeah, no, 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 no. Because no. everyone's saying that like, oh, if this isn't a big deal because Bob Iger will like essentially mentor and train the other Bob, Bob how do you say his name? Ch- Chapek? Chapek? Um, in his new role. Although he's been Chapek's been there for 27 years, years like, at Disney and like yeah, knows no, what no one, doing. No one does their best work with like the former CEO breathing down their neck and second guessing everything. They right. I, I think if in, I think both from a management's perspective, this makes no sense. and seems like a really bad idea. It's like when you try to have co-CEOs, like it's a horrible idea. Mm. And it's also it's bad from governance because the board is supposed is the one who's like voting on the CEO's pay package. They're, they're not supposed to be like mentoring the CEO. It's, it's a different job. It's a different role. They're supposed to be looking out for shareholders. And but- and Bob Iger, to be clear, is the most actively involved executive chairman I've ever seen because he's not just doing this kind of amorphous executive chairman job, which no one really knows what it means. He's actually given himself a real job on top of that, which is head of creative and he's like i'm going to be in charge of everything creative at disney which includes basically everything important it's all of the movies you know all of the tv shows um all the fun stuff and and on some level those people who work if you're like a a film producer at disney who are you working for are you working for chapek who's the ceo of the company are you working for Iger, who's the head of creative it's it's basically impossible to tell yeah. I mean, I think Iger has done a very good job. I mean, I, I, I would think, give him credit. He has done an exceptionally good job in, in this role. But I think this decision is a, a not good. And I feel like it could actually hurt his life. He and really that, has done. I mean, I, I, he has done a remarkable job when he started in 2005. Disney had two movie studios. Now it is eight movie studios, including Lucasfilm. So all Star Wars stuff. Pixar, which is like a cash cow and Marvel. Like, it's an enormous cash cow so, now. It's and, a yeah, juggernaut and, like it wasn't when he started. It's Disney truly amazing. has been, I think, uniquely, I cannot think of any other company that has been so unbelievably good at M&A. That what, what he did, what Iger did, and you have to give credit to Kevin Mayer here, who was the architect of that M&A strategy and who everyone assumed would be the next CEO, was they went out and they spent relatively small amounts of money, like single-digit billions, on Marvel, on Pixar, and on Lucasfilm. And those things turned into just absolute juggernauts and were the best acquisitions you could possibly imagine. And also, it it's not like those businesses could have done that on their own. They needed the right. Disney machine behind them. So it was a really strong strategic move if they're all concerned. Now, and what it about- worked out really well. Now, the other, the really big one was 21st Century Fox. Yeah, that, was just- that one was like orders of magnitude, at least an order of magnitude bigger than all of the rest of them combined. And the jury is still out on that one. Although, and, and the fun fact, um, 
JPEG was running Disney theme parks, which we haven't really discussed because it's not sexy, but it's almost half of Disney's income is from the, yeah. the park. Although it's also the like, lowest growth, lowest revenue growth. But he like drove. He, yeah. um, I think we recently talked about rising prices yeah, at Disneyland. At the theme parks. He's every year he does another uh, ticket price increase. And, 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 and one of the things that Disney does very well is it really does get all of its different arms working to strengthen each other so the disney theme parks do well precisely because you have like lucasfilm and star wars so they put a star wars attraction into disney world and so then everyone wants to go to disney world to ride the star wars attraction and they all feed into each other you know um even onto you know frozen on broadway and all the rest of it so it all they've done a great job of creating these massively lucrative IP franchises and you know something you know whether it's whether it's Star Wars or Frozen or Cars or anything like that you find them in all manner of different formats you find them in theme parks you find them in on Broadway you find them it's not just movies banana. anymore and there was an ad for <laughs> Elsa on my banana at Axios and I was like why is there an ad there's for always Frozen Disney 2? ads on bananas it's like a thing you see them all the time you see them all the time I, all I've the never time. seen one before oh yeah and sometimes on we get those little red cheeses Edams Little baby, the yeah. little baby bells, and they'll sometimes have like Toy Story wrappers and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's you can't get away from it. Do you remember no. when like United painted all of its planes after Star Wars? No. <laughs> yeah, and they and they had like that that little video you have on the seat back showing you how to use a seatbelt because no one knows how to use a seatbelt um, was all like Star Wars themed. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So Disney has this kind of omni-channel ubiquity, and that is all part of the strategy. And again, you can definitely thank Iger. And Maya for that. I have this one theory that's not really fully formed, but I'll just bring it up now because where else could I talk about it? But um, you know the HBO guy Plepler who left yes. a while back. He was kind of like not an Iger figure, obviously, because it's not comparable. But like he was like the creative boss type who led HBO to sort of transform itself and do these great like shows and stuff that that kept HBO in the conversation kind of a thing. And then and then he left because they merged with AT&T and everyone was like, well, now it's like a bigger thing. And Plepler was a creative guy, but they need more of like an operations-y kind of person to do the job. And I was kind of thinking, is there a parallel with Iger? Like he was so focused on creative and a lot of the pieces about him this week said, you know, Disney's too big to have a creative type running the show that you need more of an operations person like are these entertainment companies becoming so big that th like these creative roles they just don't even make sense anymore I, I see I'm not entirely convinced that Iger is some kind of <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I'm with you there and, 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 and it's weird to me that like um, that he's given himself that head of creative job mm -hmm. because I'm not sure he's qualified for that um, and then on the um conference call that disney court put out ex announcing the succession someone asked him it's like wait are you going to hire a chief creative officer and he's like yeah i don't think we need that i'm like if you don't need it why are you giving yourself that job it's it so i and, and plus like the thing about all of these ip franchises whether it's star wars or pixar or marvel you know avengers and all of that is they're not that creative right just you sequel, know, after sequel after sequel after sequel it's it's kind of a lack of creativity yeah. which is going on there you know? it's understanding markets and what people want which is important but that's not necessarily creativity right and Iger was the creative mind behind the show Cop Rock I don't know if anyone 
remembers that, but it no, was creative. That was creative. But it did not do very well. I mean, well. Disney is famous for its Imagineers, you know, that it does have this legacy of genuine creativity. And it does every so often come up with something genuinely new. Um, Frozen 1. <laughs> Frozen 1, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I just not... It's very unclear to me what Iger thinks he's going to be doing in terms of creative. But what he said he was going to, what he, how he explained this on the call was basically, we have done the strategy. The, the big acquisitions strategy of buy Marvel, buy Pixar, buy Lucasfilm, buy 21st Century Fox, have everything everywhere, have the theme parks, everything there is in place. And now it just runs itself. There's no more M&A to do. Mm. And so I can just let, Chapek run all of that in the kind of operationsy way, so, and now I get to have fun playing with minions or something. That seems that like always seems, what happens before everything falls apart. Yeah, that seems like a bad <laughs> idea. I mean, you need someone in charge who can. I'm sorry well, for no, saying it, this. Think outside the box. Like you need someone who's thinking right, ahead because what can't just run it. What's working right now is not necessarily right. what people are going to want and what is going to work in five or ten years. And Absolutely. the reason that Disney is where they are is because they were thinking ahead, and so their strategy now is and, it and doesn't the, sound great. And there are two massive, massive plays that Iger made very recently, which no one knows whether they're going to be successful and whether they're going to work out. One of them, as we said, is 21st Century Fox, which was like a existentially huge acquisition, and we don't know how that's going to play out. And the other one is Disney Plus, which yeah. is brand new and seems to be getting off to a quite good start. But again, no one knows if it's actually going to be able to you know, be in remotely as many houses as Netflix, be that popular and so on and so forth. So that strategy, like he says it's all in place, but really two of the biggest parts of it are still super babies and need a lot of tending. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So... David Siegel is my favorite writer at the New York Times. I love him. And he's moved to London and he came out with this spectacular story about the French Bernie Madoff. How awesome was it? It was a great story. For um, sure. And, and there's this one twist. You, you start reading it and you're getting into it. And then about a third of the way through, your jaw just drops. And you're like, what in actual fuck? Yeah. Should we spoil it and say what it is? Because when I came across it, I was like, that's what Felix was talking about. <laughs> yeah, I think we have to. Okay. Okay, so there's this amazing character called Gerard Leritier, who um, ponzified like rare books and manuscripts, which is the most French it's, thing yeah. you can possibly imagine. <laughs> it was so glorious. I love this story so much. Um, it is much more interesting in a way than just a story about Gérard Leroutier and his company, which was... Astrophil? Astrophil, mm -hmm. yeah. which, which is a glorious name. Um, because I would say probably two or three times a week, 
someone comes up to me and says, hey, Felix, have you seen this company that's securitizing paintings or securitizing this or securitizing David that? David Bowie was big for a while. Securitizing but that David had a Bowie. cash flow. <laughs> right. Bowie bonds were real. Yeah. Bowie bonds were real. Like, But there's these people coming out, and there was a big story in the Wall Street Journal about this guy who was buying up a Basquiat painting at auction and was going to slice it into 100,000 um, slices and sell off each slice to for, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever and none of it makes any sense and this astrophil company in france was the first and pretty much the only company in the world to ever have any seeming success um with this strategy of buying a product with no cash flow in this case manuscripts giving people a little baby slice of those manuscripts and then saying that they're going to appreciate in value and then we'll sell them for a profit and then you get to make money. And they and, and Astrophil, he said he would buy them back at a so so okay so so this is this is how share. this is how it turned into a Ponzi. Um and so most of the companies in the US which are trying to securitize Basquiat paintings or anything like that are quite sensibly not promising future returns they're not going and definitely not 8.95 percent future returns uh, yeah it's very like it's a very made off like number that right it's like made off famously promised about 10 percent a year Liritier was promising about nine percent a year it's not so high as to be unbelievable and so people actually weirdly feel safer with the single digit returns and they would like if there was a big double digit return if they were like we're gonna you know quadruple our money in five years everyone would be like no that's ridiculous you can't do that by buying manuscripts but because it was like modest it was nine percent a year he, people believe <laughs> that's a that's a decent return for, but yeah um and so the way as people believed him also because he actually paid like all ponzi schemers um when people went back to him with their pieces of paper and said I want my 9% return on this, he paid them or he paid some of them early, early on and he paid a little bit of money and he promised more money later. Like it wasn't that people weren't getting any money back from him. And one thing I thought was interesting is that he did this again with manuscripts and rare books, which David Siegel points out, like the prices don't change. There's only tw about 2,500 people in the market for these kinds of things. It's not like art, which can like people can get really excited about a certain artist and the price of their paintings could go up and down. Like, it's a very steady, yeah. so small we, market. We had a whole mini series on Slate Money of the swag series of mm -hmm. all of these things, silver, wine, art, gold, Bitcoin, cars, that people invest in as investments and want to get some kind of a positive return from. It never occurred to us <laughs> to do like rare books right. and manuscripts because people don't, buy rare books and manuscripts as an investment. It's just not one of those things. People collect not, them. They're right. not flashy. Like, you don't put a, a manuscript, Siegel says, like, you don't put a, a rare book out for display. You keep it in, like, a dark place that's, like, kind of cold, and you don't show it to anyone. It's, like, the exact opposite of, like, you know, a, a flashy car or a cool painting And it's or just not the type of alternative asset that's <laughs> going to appreciate in value enough to securitize it. So the French kind of caught Unless on. Unless you're French. Unless you're French. That is true. So the French kind of like caught on to this guy and you could like reading along and like they're catching on to him and he's, his money is kind of dwindling away, dwindling away. And then all of a sudden, oh my God, <laughs> this man, this French made off dude, 
He wins the freaking lottery. Wins it. Wins the <laughs> millions like a hundred million dollars or something. <laughs> Two hundred and fifteen million dollars. He wins the lottery. It's just like, so unreal. And I'm reading this and I'm like, wait, did he fake his ticket? Like, <laughs> but it's like, no. Apparently, like the universe is just really, really bizarre. Like everyone's grandmother, he played like his kids' birthdays every week and finally it pays off he, he says in the piece like he checked the numbers like a bunch of times he couldn't he couldn't believe it either like what are the odds but My, even that money couldn't save him he had he made 215 million dollars it just is a windfall he wins the lottery <laughs> and and he's just like yeah um the ponzi's still going down well my favorite part of the whole story, though, was that apparently you had people who like so like the Ponzi wasn't actually insolvent. It was just that the the government had kind of realized like, oh, okay, th- this isn't legitimate. But then apparently people were mad at the government because they were like, they we're are. still getting our return. They always are. This is absolutely textbook. When Ponzi's go down, the investors in the Ponzi blame the government and not the Ponzi. This is in not 100%. I don't think it happened in Madoff, but it happens with basically all of the others. It's absolutely standard because the great thing about Ponzi's is that so long as they keep on going, they keep on going. As long as you can find more suckers to buy in, it actually works. Most things are Ponzi's, aren't they? If you really start thinking about it. <laughs> no, it, it is much. It is funny. I was kind of thinking about it. If you have like certain companies that like aren't actually generating any money, yes. but then like they just keep getting... Tesla. We were. Exactly. You're like, eh, yeah. there's some similarities here. There are similarities. Yeah. If you had to do a Ponzi, do you have a anything you would... I, 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 think, I think, you know, um, office sharing seems to be like a very... <laughs> I can tell you my version. favorite Ponzi scheme. Well, we can get of into course. this more in another Tell episode. Us. The Lebanese government. They're, the way their financial <laughs> system works, it's amazing. And it is essentially a, the way they get dollars is basically a Ponzi it, it's, it's Ponzi-esque, um, but it is reliant on, one of the weird things about the Lebanese diaspora is it's incredibly global, incredibly wealthy. And there's just this constant sucking. Well, there was. There and was. they were, and then they were also getting money from other golf participants. And then once that started to stop, now this is part of the reason they're having this massive financial crisis. Wait. Anyway, we I'll will talk about, we'll talk about that more. Another. Okay. All right. I, uh, all right. Next week. You can come in with all of your questions about Lebanon. Okay. Yeah, we'll because they have, can they have the bond payment. Too. Well, they're going to postpone it, but they have the bond payment supposedly on March 9th. So after March 9th, we will see whether they make their bond payment, and then we will talk about Lebanon on all Slate right. Money. All right. All we right. heard it here first. So let's have a numbers round. Um, oh, can I go? You can go. Yes. What's your number? $330,000. That was the fine assessed to one Steven Seagal. So, <laughs> well, as Matt Levine said, like the main obvious way to work out what cryptocurrency to invest in mm-hmm. is to ask yourself, where would Steven Seagal? <laughs> yes, and I also love that the name of this was Bitcoin with two eyes. <laughs> two Gen was the name. I was like, eh. I kind of feel like if people invested in that, like I don't feel too bad for them. So today, listeners, you're listening to this on my number is. 29 because it's leap year and saturday is february 29th which is also my half birthday yes which only comes every four years but i'm telling you this because (laughs) there is this amazing it's i guess it's a blog or a website called ask a manager and um four years ago she ran maybe the weirdest and craziest nuttiest question from this woman (laughs) who's a manager asking for advice because her company gives people the day off on their birthday. Oh, wow. And this one worker's birthday is on February 29th. So the letter writer says, 
So she only has a birthday every four years. What? And she says this woman is mad because she only gets her day off every four years. And the manager says, I don't see what she's so upset about. <laughs> and it's just the nuttiest letter I've ever seen. So um, I'll put the link in the show notes and everyone can read it. That's a classic Reddit, a like, classic am I the, the asshole genre. thing? Like, am I the asshole for just giving her a quarter of the days off that everyone else gets? Yes. <laughs> and not understanding the problem. And and in addition to the day off, workers apparently also get a gift certificate and a cake. And the weirdest part of the letter possibly actually is the fact that the woman says, we don't make a big deal out of it. We just put the cake in the lunchroom and anyone could come eat it if they want. What? What is that? I've never... Everyone knows office birthday cake. Everyone comes over and it's like this awkward conversation and maybe even singing. Like, you don't just put a cake in a room and like quietly dip out. That's weird. The whole thing is are really we, Are weird. we sure this is real? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> you, yes, Anna, it's real. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Who would make it up? Do I do the Felix is sad number or do I do the Federal Reserve number? Do the Felix is sad. Felix is sad. We can always do a Federal Reserve number. <laughs> the Federal Reserve number, yeah, is like, you know, are they going to cut before the next uh, meeting? Blah, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. We'll blah. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if they do cut before the next meeting, I told you so. If they don't, of course they weren't going to. Um, the Felix is sad number is 25. 25 is section 25 of the German Nationality Act, which is what the chap at the German consulate told me that I should have read before I became a U.S. citizen in 2016. I went into the German consulate uh, this week to renew my German passport because I'm a proud European and I don't have European nationality on the grounds of being British anymore because Britain is not in the EU anymore. So I was like, that's okay. I am still European. I am still a German citizen and I want to have a passport. So I went into the consulate. It, of course, like any other country, you just mail in the old passport and they send you a new one. The Germans are much more bureaucratic. You need to make an appointment. You go into the consulate. I go into the consulate. I hand over my passport and they say, oh, um, yeah, we're not giving you this passport back because you are not a citizen. I'm like, what? And they said, you are not a citizen because you naturalized as an American. And then automatically, under Section 25 of the German Nationality Act, you lost your German citizenship when you did that. I was like, what? Like, I could have, like, murdered a bunch of people or, you know, done any number of heinous things. Um, and I would have remained a German citizen. But the thing I did was fail to read Section 25 of the German Nationality Act. And now I have lost my German Nationality. So it wouldn't have it, becoming an American citizen was the problem. Yes. So if you could go back in time, would you have not become an American citizen to remain a European citizen? All right. If I could go back in time, <laughs> what I would do before I became an American citizen was mm -hmm. I would go up to the German consulate and ask for. <clears throat> this is going to be fun. A Beibehaltungsgenehmigung. <laughs> yes. Okay. And. A Beibehaltungsgenehmigung <laughs> is a piece of paper that they give you saying, you want to become an American citizen? That's okay. You can keep your German citizenship. And if you get that before you naturalize, then it's all fine. But you need to know about it in order to ask for it. And that also is in section, actually that's <laughs> section 17 of the German Nationalities Act. So I didn't know about this. And so now... I need to basically try and persuade the Germans that if 
I had applied for one of these things before I naturalized, then they would have given it to me. This is a process that takes three years and has a relatively low chance of success. Yeah. So anyway, if anyone listening to this was under the misapprehension that I'm a European citizen, I am now not. Sad. Sad. Um, On which note, I think we're going to just wrap this up for the week. Uh, Thank you for for listening to Slate Money and thank you for emailing us. It's slatemoney at slate.com. Thank you to Jessamine Molly for producing and we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.